0: And as I talk to people, I start to realize that many people will do resolutions because they, you know, reflect on 2017 and they realize that there's some things in their life that kind of got away from them. Um, they stopped being diligent. They stopped being disciplined. They stopped being vigilant about different things. They, they kind of stopped living on purpose. And uh, as they look back in 2017, they're kind of like, man, what, what happened? Uh, how, did, how, how did that happen? I don't even remember what the year was. Um, and so the resolutions in 2018 are oftentimes a way for us to kind of say, you know what, um, I'm going to do life on purpose. I'm actually going to take um, ownership and I'm going to be more diligent and, and you know, disciplined and all that kind of stuff. And to say all that, is, it, it's really what we're doing is, is we want to live on purpose. And, and as we come into 2018, and I was thinking about communion, this is our first time gathering together as a church this year. We're susceptible to going through communion, kind of just going through the motions. Like we can just kind of mail it in. And I don't want to do that. I want to have purpose with what we're doing in communion. So in light of what we're doing with the campaign and in light of it being a new year, what I want to do is I want to actually talk about communion itself. What is it that we're doing? And why are we doing this? Because I remember at 18, before I become a Christian, I watched people... Uh, take communion. I watched the Christians gather together and take communion. and I thought it was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. And I'm thinking to myself, what are these lunatics doing? I don't get this. And I think it's important for us from time to time to just stop and think through the implications. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Because communion is rich and beautiful um, so long as we understand what it is and why we're doing it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Because we're going to go through communion. Here's what we're going to learn from Matthew chapter 26. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 26. Remember, I read out of the ESV. And uh, if you don't have that, you can download the app. We won't look down on you for having your phone out. Some of us won't. (laughs) Communion, here's what we're going to learn. Communion strengthens us together in God's grace through faith. As we remember God's redemption in Jesus and as we eagerly anticipate the fullness of God's kingdom to come. That's a mouthful. So let me tell you this. This is what we're going to learn from communion today. Communion has three different uh, kind of trajectories or kind of elements or aspects to communion that make it uh, the rich and beautiful ceremony that it is. One of them is, is the past. And the other one is the present. And then the other one is the future. So communion involves all these different things. And so what I said is when we leave today, we're going to learn together that communion strengthens us in the present together as a church body. It strengthens us together in God's grace through faith. But it happens by two ways. As we commemorate, as we look back at what God has done for us in Christ and as we look forward in eager anticipation to what God is finally and fully going to do when he returns and consummates his kingdom here on earth. And so communion involves the past, present and future reality of the saving Work in redemption of Christ. And so that's what we're going to learn about how all that fits together. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 17. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be at. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for your abundant love for rebellious sinners like us. God, thank you that you have pursued us and by your grace you have made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Thank you that it is through your grace that we believe. It is by your grace we are sustained in our faith. Everything that we have is owing to you. You are our creator and sustainer. And God, as we meet together today to take communion, I pray that you would teach us more about who you are. And God, through the elements that we will have of this bread and this cup, that you would help us to further understand the beauty of the redemption we have in Christ. So God, help my words be fruitful. God, give us the spirit to understand your word. God, help me to explain it faithfully. God, minister to your people. Meet with us, we pray, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, communion has three different kind of aspects to it. A past, a present and a future. And so that's kind of how the sermon is going to be structured this morning. We're going to start with the with the past, work our way to the present and then end with the future. So let's read this together a little bit in uh, Matthew 26 verse 17. We're going to start with the past. Communion calls us to commemorate or to remember or to recall God's work in Christ. And so we see this in verse 17. Now on the la- on the first day of unleavened bread the disciples came to Jesus saying Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And then if you remember, uh, Jesus had the disciples get the room ready and they go in verse 26. uh, Everything gets set up and they're eating together. Jesus takes bread and says, this is my body. He takes a cup and says, this is my blood. And so that is where he institutes the Lord's Supper. The first time communion ever takes place is at this moment during what's called the Passover meal. Now, it's really important because uh, Jesus doesn't do this like by coincidence. He isn't just saying, oh, we just happened to be around the table and eating Passover meal. Oh, I think this might be a good time to kind of institute the Lord's Supper. It's not like that. He had many other campfire meals he could have done that at. But instead he waited for this precise moment. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, it talks about when Jesus institutes the Passover that he eagerly was waiting and anticipating and he was so excited to have this Passover meal with them. Why? Because he was going to use this Passover meal to help teach them what his life and his death and his eventual resurrection was all about. And so communion calls us to commemorate God's work in Christ. And when Jesus institutes it, he institutes it, uh, he he brings it about for the very first time during a Passover meal, which is a Jewish feast and celebration. And I think it's important for us to think through what Passover was. Why did they eat this meal? And what is its significance for the Jewish people? So much so that Jesus said, hey, you see this Passover meal? Guess what? There's there's a better meal going on. Okay, so how how does all that work? Let's go to uh, Exodus chapter 12. Looking at verse 14. This is what Moses writes about the Passover, the first Passover. He says, this day, Passover, shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So when Passover is about to happen, Moses makes sure that the people understand that this meal is supposed to conjure up memories of what God has done. It's a memorial meal. And if if you remember what Jesus does is he's sitting there and he takes the bread and he takes the cup and he gives it to his disciples and he's explaining to them and interpreting interpreting to them what it is he's doing and that is in following with what Moses wrote in Exodus chapter 13 in verse 3 Moses said to the people remember this day remember it's a memorial in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. So he reminds the people that it is God who has rescued you. It is God who has delivered you. It is God who has set you free from the bondage of slavery. In verse 8, he says, uh, referring to the Passover meal, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me that when I came out of Egypt. And Moses says that because eventually the head of the household is supposed to stand up at the Passover meal and explain and interpret what the meal is all about. And so if your son or your daughter comes to you and says, what are we doing? Why are we eating this meal? Moses says in Exodus 13, 8, you shall tell your son in that day it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. You are to use this meal to help bring uh, some clarification and instruction to the next generation about the glorious work of God to free us from slavery. And so Jesus is doing a very similar thing during the Last Supper. He's taking the elements of this meal and he's giving the explanation and the interpretation as the head of the household to his children, which is the disciples, you know, children, his disciples. So he's explaining and interpreting, this bread is my body, This, this cup is my blood. And he's telling them this is a memorial. This is to remember how, you know, how God rescued you from slavery in Egypt. Well, I'm going to rescue you from the slavery of sin. And I want you to take this meal in remembrance of what I've done. So Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, reminding or telling them to remember what God has done. And, you know, about that Passover meal, one of the interesting things is on the first night of it, you were to take a lamb and you were to sacrifice it at twilight. And here's what Moses writes about that whole process in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. He says, your lamb shall be without blemish, perfect, spotless, a male, a year old. And then he says in verse 7 that they shall, the people shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Verse 13, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, if you remember, uh, uh, right before the Israelites left Egypt, God gave uh, the, land of Is- uh, the land of Egypt ten plagues. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. And so on Passover, you were to eat this meal, you take this spotless, blameless, perfect lamb, and you would sacrifice it. You take the blood of the lamb, you would put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the house. So that way when the angel of death came over Egypt to take all the firstborn sons, when, when the angel saw the blood covering the doorway, it would pass over that house and go to the next one. And so the blood is the sign or the symbol that this house is preserved and death can't touch it. Instead, you live forever. And so that's, that's the whole concept behind the Passover. Passover. The blood of the lamb preserves us and keeps us from death and instead makes sure that we have life. And so the people were to remember this. And I love um, what Passover is for us as Christians. It's not a meal that we practice anymore. Instead, it's a meal we read about and we understand that in the Old Testament, God was often doing things to get our attention. It's kind of like foreshadowing. If you ever watch a movie, you see certain scenes kind of foreshadow other scenes and you're like, oh, I think this is going to happen. And then when it happens, you're like, I knew it. I knew that was going to happen. You know what I'm talking about, that whole foreshadowing and, and expecting something. Well, the Passover meal was like a shadow or a foreshadowing of a greater meal. It involved a lamb whose blood would be shed in order to preserve people and and keep them from death. Well, you know what? It's foreshadowing a greater lamb who's going to have greater blood, who's going to overcome a greater death and preserve you for a greater life. And so the trajectory in the Old Testament is always pointing towards Christ and leading us towards Christ and all that he's done for us. And the Passover meal is exactly like that, so much so that the apostle Peter actually writes about that in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. He says and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that and check this out knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold you cannot buy your salvation. But instead you were ransomed, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you see what, what Peter's doing? He's trying to get in the minds of, of the Jewish people. Hey, you know what? You guys cling to the Passover lamb and the blood was you know, great and all that kind of stuff. Guess what? Greater lamb, greater blood, greater life in Jesus. And so that is in part what this meal is. It's a memorial for us to remember how God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And not with money, but with the precious, perfect, spotless blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So that's what we do. No wonder why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he's talking about communion. He says, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So communion is a past. It has a past aspect. It's, it's calling us to reflect and remember all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But not only is it a past uh, have a past aspect but it has a present aspect as well communion calls us to participate together in in the work of christ it's a it's a present reality there's a present benefit and i think this guards against us coming to communion as some kind of empty ritual I just got to pop this bread in my mouth and drink the cup it's not like that there's something beautiful happening what is happening Well, let's go uh matthew 26 verse 26 As they were eating, Jesus took the bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Now now what's beautiful about this is is he doesn't just want people to sit idly by and watch him take communion. He wants us to engage in it. There's an active participation. Here is, is the bread. Here is the cup. Eat it. Drink it. Participate in it. And I think that's really, really cool. Especially when you know what the bread and cups symbolize, what its meaning is. You see, the the bread and cups symbolize the flesh and blood of Jesus. And these things serve as tangible. We can touch it, you can pour it out and spill it on you. They're tangible elements which speak to us about the reality of the gospel. They are right there, right in front of us. So when he says, eat the bread, what he means is eat my flesh. When he says drink the blood, what he means is drink, or, drink the cup, he says drink my blood. Now if we interpret that literally, that's weird. Okay, you agree with me on that one, right? So a dude comes up to you and says, hey, take a bite. No. That's why in, uh, in the early church, a lot of like Romans and a lot of pagans and stuff who didn't know much about Christianity, they actually thought that the Christians were cannibals. It's <laughs> crazy. The, the, the reason why they thought that is because they had no frame of reference for understanding what the whole meal is about. And so if we interpret the bread and the cup as some sort of like literal thing, like, oh, there's no, you flesh and blood. Dude, that's not the intention. Think about it, on the night when Jesus gave them the bread, do you, when he said, hey, take this and eat it, this is my flesh. Do you think any of the disciples were sitting there going, whoa, it looks like bread, but I guess it isn't. Do, do you understand? They're smart enough people to know the hand that hands them the bread is different than the bread that is in the hand. Like, that's different. Okay. So how do we interpret this? And I think the best way to interpret Jesus' body and blood is the way Jesus intends for us to interpret it. And that's found in John 6. So if you have a Bible, we're going to go to John chapter 6. And we'll read a little bit about what Jesus means for us to understand when it comes to communion and the body and blood of Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 47. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I want you to keep that in your mind, whoever believes. And you notice there's no, there's no direct object to the verb believe. We're not told what we're to believe in. We just believe. If you do that, you have eternal life. Okay, so keep that in your mind. Got it? Okay, keep going. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers, meaning the Jews in the Old Testament, they ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Do you notice that in verse 51 he says that you will live forever? And in verse 47 he says you can live forever. But do you notice in verse 47 he says belief and you live forever. And in verse 51 he says eat this flesh or this bread and you live forever. So the question is, which is it? Is it belief and I get eternal life or is it eat the flesh and I get eternal life? Yes. And here's what we mean by this is when you read this passage, what Jesus is saying is they're one in the same. To eat the flesh of Jesus is to place your trust in the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. That is what it means to feast on Jesus is to believe. All right, let's keep going. Verse 52. So if you interpret that literally, you'd be grossed out. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Or in other words, Ugh, that is gross. Okay. So Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you need to, truly, truly is like a highlighter of the Bible. Jesus is trying to get your attention. Wake up. Unless... You eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Whoa. If you want to live forever, if you want to be saved from the wrath of God and sin and live in the presence of God in a new creation, a new created uh, heavens and earth. The only way for you to do that, according to Jesus, is to feed on his flesh and drink his blood. But that can't mean eating this bread and drinking this cup. It means you must feast on Jesus through faith. It's belief that Jesus is enough. His body and his sacrifice is enough. His blood and his resurrection is enough. Maybe you don't believe me yet. Let's keep going. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Well, in other words, if this is hard for you to understand, you know what would really blow, like blow your mind? Is If you watched me sit at the right hand of the Father on high, oh, that would blow you away. Keep going. Verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You can't buy your way into the kingdom. You can't work your way into the kingdom. You can't do anything literally in your body to get you to the kingdom. The spirit gives you life. The flesh is no help. And then he goes on to say the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Or in other words, they are spiritual things. Which tells us, you know what, when we take the bread in our hands and we take the cup in our hands, we are not to interpret these elements literally. That's what the Catholic Church gets wrong. These are not literally the flesh and blood of Jesus. They're meant to be interpreted spiritually. That's what he says. These words are spirit and life. And so spiritually what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to take this bread and this cup and we understand that these are symbols. They represent something. And their importance is not in what they are. Their importance is what they signify, what they point towards. Think about that. If you're ever on a freeway and you have road construction and it says bridge out ahead, you don't just go, oh, that sign's really important. The sign is not important. What's important is what the sign points to, which is the bridge is out. You guys get that? So the bread and the the cup are not the thing that, that makes communion special. What makes it special is what these things signify, what they represent. And what these things are, when we take bread into our hands, it serves as a spiritual, tangible, actual reality that represents a spiritual truth. So you take bread in your hand and what you're holding is something which represents a greater reality. Jesus' body was broken on the cross. And the body that was broken on the cross for you was sufficient enough to pay for your sins. Wow. But not only that, as we eat this bread with with faith in our hearts, because remember, it's supposed to be interpreted spiritually. And so faith is what gives you eternal life. And so as you hold that bread and you eat it with faith in your heart, what God does is he nourishes your soul through your faith in accordance by his grace. And the same thing with the cup. When you take the cup in your hand, you are holding a tangible uh, thing which symbolizes a greater spiritual truth. And with faith in your heart, as you take that, God works spiritual reality in you presently, today, where he strengthens you and nourishes you according to his grace. It's what the church has called for thousands of years, means of grace. You guys know the difference between an end and a means, right? The end is where you arrive, and the means is how you get there. And so, the means of grace are the things that God has ordained for us that He uses to strengthen us and nourish us in our faith. So, Bible reading is a means of grace. With faith in your heart, as you pick up this book and you read it, God, He just nourishes you and encourages you and strengthens you according to His grace. As you pray, With faith in your heart, God encourages you and strengthens you and nourishes you according to his grace. And as you are baptized, you get plunged in the waters and you rise up, symbolizing that new life you have in Jesus. With faith in your heart through that process, God strengthens you and encourages you according to his grace. And likewise, when we come to the communion table, you take bread and cup and when you eat it and you drink it with faith in your heart, God encourages you and strengthens you according to his grace. What we're doing is not idle, you know, just kind of ritual. What we're doing is something spiritual and significant. And when you come to church spiritually worn out, you know what you can do? Take communion. And God will work a spiritual uh, rejuvenation and nourishment and strengthening in your soul as you take it with faith. That's what John 6 is all about. And what I think is really cool, too, is when we think about taking that bread in our hand I remember reading Deuteronomy 16:3. And this is what uh, Moses writes about the whole bread that's involved in the Passover. This is what he writes to the people who say, "You shall not eat you shall eat no leavened bread with it with the Passover meal. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread." The, and, and then he calls the unleavened bread of Passover "the bread of affliction." For you came out of Egypt in haste. That all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Well, in other words, your deliverance from bondage and slavery from Egypt was not cheap. It was costly. It involved affliction and pain and suffering. So when we take the bread in our hands as a tangible symbol of what is signified, the broken body of Jesus, we have to remember that this bread is the bread of affliction, The grace of God is not cheap. The grace of God is costly. Jesus was crucified. And same thing with the cup. When we take the cup, Luke 22 tells us it's the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. A covenant is an oath-bound commitment that lasts a lifetime. An oath-bound commitment that lasts a lifetime. When two people enter, in, enter, enter into a covenant, uh, they swear to one another, and if you break the covenant, it results in death. So a covenant is way different than a contract. You guys are all in contracts with your cell phone companies and your internet providers and all that kind of stuff. And, and if the service starts to not be good anymore, you can just cancel the contract and get out of it. Or you have to pay a penalty. But, you know, you just wipe your hands of it and go to the next company. And a covenant is not like that. In a covenant, if you break that covenant, it's going to cost you your life. You getting get in a cell phone company uh, like that? <laughs> if you break this, we're going to come kill you. What? <laughs> but that's the covenant. It, it was enacted with blood. And it was an oath-bound commitment. And what's interesting is when Jesus shed his blood, he instituted the new covenant. The new covenant isn't that if you break the covenant, God's going to come kill you. Instead, it's this. God swears to us by his own character, by his own integrity. He swears to us that we are his people and he is our God. That nothing can stand against us because he is for us. He promises us in John that we are in his hand and nobody can pluck us out of it. And he makes a promise and swears to us that once we are his children, we are truly his children. And according to the covenant that he's making with us, we'll never be separated from him. So when we take the cup in our hand, it isn't just, oh, here's some juice. We are holding in our hands an actual representation of the covenant that God has made with us. The new covenant which was enacted in the shed blood of Jesus. God is for me and not against me. That is incredible. So much so that uh, Jeremiah 31 talks about this new covenant. He says this, he writes in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and and each his brother saying, "Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And check this out. Oh man, if this doesn't uh, touch your heart, maybe you're dead. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Brothers and sisters, when we hold the cup, which symbolizes the shed blood of Jesus and the new covenant that God has promised us, we have to remember these words, that by this blood, your sins are forgiven. And not only are your sins are forgiven, but God says, I remember your sin no more. Okay, think about that for a second, because you and I, if we're being honest with ourselves, we are very aware of how sinful we are. And I know people, it's popular in our culture to talk about, I'm not a sinner. I'm just, you know, basically good. No, you're not. <laughs> Ask your family. <laughs> we basically know that we're pretty messed up people. We're pretty selfish. We're pretty sinful. And we don't need to be convinced of that. We already know it. Why else do we make excuses for stuff? Why do we feel the need to justify stuff? Why do we feel guilt and shame at sometimes when we don't do the things we ought to do? It's because you're sinful. And I know that's like totally repulsive to some people, but don't be repulsed by the truth. <laughs> You're a sinner. But here's the thing is we are so cognizant and we are so aware of our sin. And the reality is, to be honest with you, one of the reasons why we did a 2018 resolution is we're hoping to sin less next year. Because we're thinking back of 2017 and we're like, oh man, that was a lot of sin. We are very aware. Now now, think about this for a second. God who knows all things, God who knows the infinite possibilities of every potentiality in all the universe has chosen willingly and lovingly to look at us in the face and say, the sin that you're so aware of, the sin that you always remember, I need you to understand this. I who know all things have chosen to forget your sin. And what that means is this. When we hold the cup, it isn't time for us to sit there and feel just horrible about ourselves. You know, I'm a wretch. Instead, it's supposed to remind us that as wretched as we are, God loved us. And loved us so much that he forgave us. And not only did he love us and forgive us, but he has chosen willingly to no longer consider us according to our sin. Brothers and sisters, you're not, if you're a Christian, you're not defined by your sin any longer. You are defined by the righteousness which is yours in Christ Jesus. And we have to live in that truth. So that's why Matthew wrote in chapter 26, verse 28 This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Look, if you're not a Christian here today, that's what you're missing out on. You're still in your sins, and you know it, but you don't have to be anymore. You can be forgiven. And not only be forgiven, but you can actually have a clear conscience, according to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. That you can be free of guilt and free of shame. And I, I just, why would you not want that? God's done all that is necessary to ransom us and to reconcile us to himself. And, and in fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, I'm gonna just read a couple verses from there. Verse 14, by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And I get it, one of the bad raps of Christians is that we claim to be perfect. (laughs) If if you're a Christian, don't do that. What are you thinking? You're not perfect. Here's a little secret about what Jesus did on the cross. Not only did he die for your sins and all that kind of stuff, but he also outed you. The whole reason why Jesus had to die on the cross is for sin. And all have sinned. And so when Jesus died, he outed everyone. Nobody's perfect. So we as Christians, we have the freedom in the gospel to say, "I dude, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinful wretch and apart from God, I'm nothing." The grace of God has sustained me and saved me. I'm nothing, but God has made me everything. And then you look at this verse, by a single offering, God has perfected us for all time. He has perfected, we're perfect in the view of God. But look at the next part. We are also in the process of being sanctified. And then he goes on to write in in verse 17, and, and, and the author of Hebrews recounts Jeremiah 31, and then he says, and we have to remember when God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Brothers and sisters, when we hold the communion cup in our hands, what we're doing is we are having a tangible representation of the truth of the new covenant that God is for us and not against us. Our sins are paid for. They're washed away. We are perf- perfect in Christ. His blood covers us. We're not gonna die. We're gonna live with him forever. And on top of all that, he is for us and not against us. That is what you're doing when you hold that. You are reciting that to yourself. God, God. You have done an amazing thing for me. And through that, God nourishes us and encourages us. And not only that, but we are meant to share this together. I love this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What a great encouragement that is to us presently. We are being nourished through faith in our hearts by the grace of God to remember the new covenant that God has enacted through Jesus and all the benefits that are ours because of Christ. But we do that together. You know, the, word, the root word of communion is communal. Communal means to share together and to have in common. And I think a lot of times when we come to communion, we, we just get so... Uh, personalized and individualistic that we just like go into ourselves and we forget the fact that there are literally hundreds of people around us who are acknowledging by eating the bread and acknowledging by drinking the cup that they are wretched sinners in the presence of a holy God but they've been saved by grace through faith and so when we eat that bread and we drink that cup it's, it's kind of weird I know but but just stop for a second and just realize there's other people doing it with you And and if you know anything about life, like when you start liking something and you find out that somebody around you also likes it, doesn't it fill you with excitement? (gasps) You too? Dude, we should do it together. Okay. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like when people discover racquetball and they're like, oh, you like racquetball too? Let's go play together. It's a weird phenomenon when you realize, oh, I'm not alone. I have somebody in this with me. So when we eat that bread and take, and take that cup, you have to realize we're in this together. We are the body of Christ. You are brothers and sisters. And when we eat this and we look around, you too? Awesome. I'm not alone in this. I'm not as weird as I thought I was. <laughs> and so that is the present reality. And here's the future orientation, which I think is awesome. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. Jesus, or 29, he says, uh, Jesus uh, says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. What Jesus says is this is the last time I'm going to be with you guys drinking this until we drink it new in the kingdom. And so what this meal is supposed to do, this meal is supposed to point us forward. That there's coming a day where the fullness of the kingdom of God will finally be brought to earth. In a thing called the new heavens and new earth, the new creation. So when we eat this meal, we eat this bread and we drink this cup, what we're doing is we're eagerly anticipating the promises of God that one day he's going to make all things new again. Where there's going to be no more tears and no more pain and no more death and no more sorrow. It's going to be life and joy and fullness. And in Revelation 19 we're told that one day we will celebrate with Christ all that he's accomplished at a place called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where Jesus will be our sacrificed lamb and also our victorious lion, if you remember that. And we're going to celebrate with him all that he's done in this recreated and restored new heaven and new earth. And it's going to be fantastic. And so this meal is supposed to help us anticipate a better meal that is to come. And you know what? We won't need communion anymore when we have Jesus himself. The the use of symbols will go away. Because we will behold him as he really is. We'll have him. And that's amazing. You see, Jesus preached in Mark 1 that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. But he also says the kingdom of God is coming fully and finally when I come back. And that's why Paul writes... For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Once he comes, we won't need this stuff anymore. You know, to think about that whole already, not yet, already there's spiritual truth and realities for us, but we're not yet experiencing them to their fullness. It's what New Testament scholars and stuff and what the Bible describes as the already and not yet tension. We are already perfect, and yet we're not yet perfect, we're being made perfect. The kingdom of God has already come, but yet it's not yet come in its fullness. And so there's always that tension that we feel. We need to be home with the Lord, but at present we're still on earth and it stinks in a lot of ways. So Jesus wants to remind us that this meal in this kingdom at this present time is supposed to stir up inside of us affections for the coming and the fullness and the finality of his kingdom when he appears. And I love these verses, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That is true. If you're a Christian here, that is true of you are a child of God. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. You see that Tension. We are already God's children, but what we will be is not yet fully appeared. But we know that when He appears, when Jesus returns, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Philippians 3 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 1 Corinthians 11, 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do realize that at right now we just anticipate the Lord's coming. We're anticipating his return and that's why the end of revelation is all about come Lord Jesus come because we want to be restored we want to be renewed we want our resurrected bodies and when we eat this meal we are in eager anticipation for the coming of that moment and that is so important for us communion strengthens us together Because when your neighbor sitting in the pews who many of us don't even know their names, but when your neighbor is struggling in faith and just saying this life stinks and I just want to throw in the towel, communion ought to be the visible and tangible thing to remind them as hard as it is, it ain't going to always be this way. He's going to come back. Justice is going to be served. We're going to have renewed and resurrected bodies. All things will be made new again. Have hope. Have hope. So in communion, there's a past reality of all that God has done in Jesus. There's a present reality that we are spiritually nourished and encouraged through his grace, through faith. And there's a, a future orientation that we eagerly anticipate his coming. And one of the most beautiful things about communion is that it is a victorious celebration. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15, and you, Christians, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do that? He nailed it. He set it aside by nailing it to the cross. Jesus is our final and full payment for all the debt of sin. And the conclusion is that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Brothers and sisters, communion is not just a somber kind of time where we're like, oh, we're at Jesus' funeral. It's, it's, it's a celebration that Jesus has triumphed, that he has overcome death, that sin is washed away, that through the blood of the lamb we can have forgiveness of sins. Let us celebrate and proclaim that God is victorious in the person of Christ. And that's what we do with communion. And brothers and sisters, we get to do that this morning. It's not yet afternoon, so I'm okay saying that. (laughs) So let's do that together as a church to be strengthened and encouraged. So, Father, we thank you so much for the special time that we have to stop and reflect on your salvation through Jesus Christ, your one and only son. So, God, would you fill us anew and afresh with your spirit so that we can be nourished and strengthened by your grace through faith. God, meet us now at this communion table, I pray, for your glory and for our joy. Amen.